Welcome to the Mwango Capital Podcast. At Mwango Capital, we aggregate uh, key information on African capital markets through Twitter, Telegram, and our weekly newsletter called The Baobab. We also hold weekly discussions every Friday on topical issues on African capital markets, and we also engage in analysis and research and training. We look forward to another engaging conversation on our Twitter spaces. Uh, So join us there every Friday so that we can keep having quality conversations on African capital markets. Without further ado, welcome to today's conversation. Welcome to our Twitter Spaces today. Today's conversation is about Centum, and we are privileged to have the CEO here today. Centum is unique in the sense that I don't think it has a peer at the Nairobi Stock Exchange. It would be nice to get a, a deep dive into this company from the CEO himself. He spent a, quite a chunk of time on this in this company himself, so he should understand the nooks and crooks of it. So we'll start off maybe by asking that you can introduce yourself to those who don't know you. I'm not so sure if there are many, uh, but it would be nice to have a quick thumbnail sketch of who you are and what you do. Thank you. Thank you, Eric. Uh, this is James Moria. I'm the Chief Executive Officer of Centum Investment. It's a pleasure to be on this platform today and looking forward to share the highlights. As Eric has explained, have been, I have been with the company since uh, 2001, so been with the so 20 years, uh, the last 12 of which have been its, its CEO. Uh, it would be interesting also to hear how did you get started in your career? Did you know that you wanted to be at Central from an early age? No, not really. You know, I, I, I studied um, accounting at, at, at Strathmore and, and law at uh, the University of Nairobi. And so when, we, when I completed um, my law studies just before graduation, I secured an internship at Centum. It was then called ICDCI. And I joined sort of doing all manner of work, clerical work, accounting work, investment work, filing work. And I, I started off in the filing room and I and I enjoyed reading the files. And we were doing, the last equity raise that Centum did was sometime in May of 2001. And the then CEO, Tony Wenena, decided to administer a quiz on the staff on their knowledge of the business. And I did well, and that's how I got a job. So... I started off on the accounting side, so accounting for portfolio companies. I then uh, sort of moved also into operations, so supporting various portfolio companies. And and eventually in 2005, I then became the investment manager. So I, I was investment manager for a while, left briefly to join another organization, then came back as the CEO in, I was asked to come back as the CEO in December 2000, 2008. So it's, 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 been an interesting, it's been an interesting journey. So yes, no, I did not know I would end up in investments. I did not know I had an interest in investments. And that's how I found myself in this organization. So maybe following up on that, then I would ask uh, what inspires you day to day and what guides you in terms of how you lead the company and what kind of people inspire you? I know like for me personally, Warren Buffett stands out uh, because of the model in terms of which he leads the company. So maybe you can describe to us who inspires you day to day and what kind of books do you read? Yeah, so you see what 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 I really liked about ICDC then today today Centum was the fact that we were creating businesses. So our business is to create other businesses. 
back to introduction and, and to make them better and to, and to exit them. And, and in doing so, you're also touching lives, you know, and we've had many, many examples of companies that we've been involved in, that we've scaled up, where you've increased the number of people who are employed, uh, improved livelihoods, and ultimately exited. And that for me is exciting. And the fact that you're also creating new enterprise, it may be new enterprise, it may be scaling up existing enterprise. And I think to have a local platform that is Kenyan platform, where you're using Kenyan capital, because, you know, many times when I've traveled to other parts of Africa, the biggest challenge is that the capital that is invested is normally foreign. But here you have a company that has local shareholders and it was established in 1967 specifically for that purpose to, to mobilize capital from indigenous Kenyans. Uh, in fact, that's how it was defined in the articles and, and have their own vehicle that they could invest in. Uh, to have that sort of operation and, and, and to be a conduit of, of creation you know, I find it, for me, has been very inspirational. I, I've been blessed in my life to work with a very exceptional people and, and, and role models, people many people read about but have had a chance to, to work with. Whether it's my first boss, uh, Tony Wenena, who was, who was exceptional, people like Peter Mwangi, who later became CEO of NSC, then Old Mutual, that's somebody I worked with when he was an investment manager. When I joined uh, Transcentury briefly, I worked with James Gashui and, and Zef Mbogwa, uh, very, very closely. Uh, somebody like uh, Chris Kirubi, who we've worked with for, for many years. Uh, people like Donald Kaberuka, James Mugwe. So I've had this wonderful blessing to to have had a chance to have worked with, with, with truly exceptional, exceptional people. And those people have been wonderful mentors for me. In terms of books I read, I, I, I read very widely. I, you know, initially, at the beginning of my career, I read a lot of finance books. Uh, many people don't know that I taught accounting at, at Strathmore, uh, ACCA, Paper 3.3, Performance Management. I then introduced uh, the CFA program at, at Strathmore. So I was uh, one of the sort of, actually the pioneer lecturer in the CFA program at, at Strathmore uh, way back in 2009. But then as you move from being an individual contributor to a leader, and then to a leader of leaders, then you start now sort of focusing more on your people side, leadership development side. It's not so much technical. It's about how do you influence people to perform, to perform better. And therefore, the books you read are sort of now tend to be very, very eclectic uh, mix. So right now I'm reading uh, one of the books I carried is Sanzu, The Art of War. I'm reading a book about um, sapiens. So you, 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 because you want to understand people, ultimately you're getting results through people and, and what motivates them. And, and that for me now is quite, quite interesting. You, uh, earlier on, then I spent a lot of time understanding strategy, organizational design, sort of uh, technical stuff. So uh, I, have a wide, I have a wide interest, history, uh, politics. In some industry, you are the largest player in the sector. You need to understand how economies function, how the political side interacts with the economic side. Uh, so it's sort of an evolution as 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 you also grow. Yeah, it's impressive that uh, you also studied accounting and taught accounting because uh, a lot of people also don't like accounting. Uh, so maybe you can inspire people to actually take some time to learn accounting. And since as uh, people say, it's also the language of business. Don't you think so? You know, actually, when I was in 
school i did not think i would secondary school i did not think i would even study accounting uh, what happened is that um, Strathmore uh, Jim McPhee came to our high school and they were interviewing students for scholarship to join uh, Strathmore in in January of 1996 and I was one of those who was interviewed and the choice was between accounting and a program then called IDPM I didn't know anything about accounting so I picked IDPM which was computers then McPhee said you know students come here and they don't really like computers therefore you may want to choose accounting and that's how i just sticked accounting and i ended up at strathmore and, and i loved it because you know the first semester we learned law we learned um, financial accounting one and we learned economics so suddenly you can understand what is in the papers you can read a set of accounts and get make sense of it and you have the basics of law whether it's law of contract law of tort insurance law and that's how i got into i ended up actually uh, studying two different accounting uh, uh, sort of uh, qualifications, CPA and uh, CIMA, and then later CFA. So it was a journey that was very accidental for me, but one that I really ended up uh, loving and fell in love with. Yeah, we hope such stories, you can also include them in a book in future. I mean, you would love to also read and how you have developed yourself. So maybe one thing I would say also, sorry for the loss of a a key mentor, but one of the questions I also wanted to ask was, what key lessons like have you learned from having interacted with all these people? What makes for a great uh, business leader and business person from the people that you've interacted with and from the reflections from the books that you read? You know, the interesting thing that um, I've picked up from these people is that they are very fearless. They, are, they, 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 they don't have, they're not constrained by what they have. So when they dream, they don't dream starting with what resources they have. They dream focused on the opportunity and the resources are secondary. So say you're going to buy a company and we've been in many instances where we went, you know, shopping for opportunities. Like when I started off even at Centum, the point is that, you, you know, you're making a bid for a company worth two, three billion shillings and you don't have the money and you'll pick it along the way. So they, they don't have a constrained mindset, which a lot of times we have. The second thing is that they are problem solvers. They 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 really focus on the problem. Many times it's it's a solution, and and how you can optimize, you know you know whatever situation you are you're in. And too many times one gets stuck focusing on the problem here now, uh, whereas sort of time can be spent on the on the on you know on the on, on the solution. The third thing is that you know, they're extremely positive, you know, even when you're going through a lot of challenges or when the economy is very challenging, there's a strong sense of positivity. I think the fourth one for me is they focus very, very strongly on their circle of influence and you and you always, always work to increase your circle of influence. So one thing Chris used to tell me, uh, James, it's not enough to focus on your circle of influence, increase your circle of influence. So if Policy is going to affect the business. It's your business to know, understand the policymakers, understand the environment, understand who's doing what, uh, forge relationships so that you can influence. You don't want to, you want to minimize the points of surprise in, in, uh, in a process. So, you know, relatively very proactive. So it's about individuals who can create something from, from, from nothing. And, and for example, when I, when I took over Centum in 2008, uh, if you look at the balance sheet, we had 10 million shillings of cash. And 
the OD, we had an overdraft of 170 million and the limit was 200. So it was like 40 million shillings. And when we start to discuss our what was then now Centum 2.0, there was no limitation of where will we raise the money from, what will happen. And we didn't raise equity. We know we, we you know those are problems you you know you deal with. So I think for me that's the difference that I have picked with all the different people I've worked with, the great people I've had the blessing to work with. I think at, at this point, then it would be interesting to also pivot a little bit now to the business itself, Centum, and try to understand what is the business of Centum. Because a lot of people, you know, if they want to compare, they would want to compare it to Safaricom, they know Safaricom does uh, tech and mobile tech uh, in that regard. So if they want to compare with Equity Bank, Equity Bank is a bank. So then when they, you come to Centum, people get stumped a little bit. So what does Centum do? Centum is actually a simple business. We we have capital, we deploy capital with the intention of creating and enhancing value in the companies that we invest in. And ultimately we realize that value through exits. So we are not a conglomerate, we don't, we are not a holding company, we don't hold companies indefinitely, but we are in that cycle of creating more capital and creating value through deploying it and and sort of participating in the value creation. So 80% of our time is in the value creation phase where you have a portfolio and you're working on making those companies better and positioning them for an exit so that you can realize your, your value. The only challenge for Centum is because you then have different companies in your portfolio at any given time, for an analyst trying to understand it as a conglomerate is difficult because also the companies in the portfolio are dynamic. So to put it simply, our, our investments are the inventory. So if you compare us with breweries, you may have inventory of Tasca of various alcoholic products. For us, our inventory are the companies that are currently in the portfolio. And everything in the portfolio, what we sell is not the products the companies sell. For the investment company, what is being prepared for sale are the companies themselves. So for example, we created a company like Centum Real Estate. We're, as as Centum Investment Company, we're not in the business of selling houses. We are, we, are, we are building a company. Which company we ultimately going to to sell and realize realize value? So that's 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 a business we, we we are in. And if I take a step back, because it has changed depending on how we funded it. So in two thousand nine, when when I started off my tenure CEO, this company had existed from nineteen sixty seven to two thousand nine. Uh, that is 40, 42 years. And in that period, we had grown assets from slightly less than a billion to six billion shillings. No, yeah, six billion shillings. And there was a feeling that this company could do more. But there were constraints. The constraints were the shareholders who are largely government and individual shareholders were not keen to invest additional equity capital in the business. So then the model was, how do we create capital so that, and they did not want to be diluted. So then how do we deploy? So then the solution was, the only way you can then deploy is to one, offload your non-performing assets. That's why, for example, one of the first actions I did was to sell RVR and a couple of other assets to build up some liquidity. But then invest in assets where you have scope for significant value growth with the intention of exiting. Now, 
because this is not an equity funded model so if you look at most private equity investments you go and get money from investors so they give you long term equity say 10 year money and you as a fund manager or the PE fund manager have 10 years to deploy it and return it back to the investors in my position it was a lot more challenging because then what we had to do was to go and borrow money and so take debt and deploy that debt and 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 the challenge of deploying debt is that you then have both the principal repayment to make and interest repayments to make so you have a mismatch you have a maturity mismatch between the investments you're making and the funding but that mismatch arises because of the constraints that are there which are how are the owners of the company you know what funding model are they comfortable with so in, in my case the funding model they were comfortable with was a debt funded model where the only concession they gave me as a CEO was then you could have a dividend freeze. The intention was to build assets, sell, pay down the debt, and then be left with capital of our own. So that in the next cycle, you could then have a longer-term holding period. When you've funded an investment portfolio with debt, and the debt is maturing, you have no option but to exit, uh, to repay the debt. And, and, and the second thing is that dividend yield is going to be lower than than the interest component of the debt because the average dividend yield of a portfolio is going to be like 3% and you have a funding cost of about 13%. So you have a mismatch of about 10%. So you have to be very aggressive in creating value. So And, and that's what you've seen over the last 10 years. We, we, we invested and exited about 10 assets, uh, sort of created 30 billion of value in the process or realized 30 billion. 34 billion, 3 billion of which is dividend. So many people ask, James, why didn't you hold? You see, you can't hold if you funded it with debt. If I'd funded it with equity, then you can hold. And, and the second thing is that the dividend is a very small component of return. So out of the 34 billion we got back, only 3 billion was dividend. 30 billion is, is, uh, is, is sort of a capital uplift that is realized through the exit. Now, what were we doing? What we were doing was building capital of our own and the intention was that from the exit we would then retire the debt so that eventually in the next cycle the capital you'd invest was not borrowed capital neither is it shareholder new shareholder capital but the company's own capital and that's what we're doing in 2.0 and um, and 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 3.0 coming into 4. Point, coming into 4.0 now and that's why in coming towards the end of 2018-2019 Again, because you're in many companies, you, you, you have a sense of the feel of the economy because we, we, the space we're operating is in the growth space. So for you to create value in an entity, you're not betting on multiple expansion. You're betting on earnings growth. Now, if earnings grows, like say in the case of Almasi, the company that we consolidated, which I was chairman for, for, for about five, six years, when we started EBITDA was 600 million. Now, how you create value is moving that EBITDA from 600 million to 2 billion in as short a period as possible. Now, when you get to 2 billion, you then start feeling that there are headwinds and there's pushback. Now, if this EBITDA comes back to 1.5, which is, which is a 500 million decline, and say a strategic investor is going to buy you off at 10 times, that's a 5 billion reduction in your valuation. So we started feeling that the headwinds were there and that it made sense for us to make some exits 
with the intention of paying the debt and retaining the residual capital so that then, to the example you gave earlier of Warren Buffett, uh, remember that's also an old company, you are then not investing borrowed capital. You are then investing your own capital. So the first step is, of course, pay down the debt, build your, your marketable, your yielding portfolio. Again, because then what you want to risk in the next cycle is not the principal. You now want to start risking the income uh, that is coming from, from the portfolio. But the business remains the same. The business remains, you go in, you create value, you get some money back either through dividends or shareholder loan repayments. Ultimately, every company, the intention is to sell it. I think that's a really brilliant explanation of how the, the business model and all. I would say like maybe a couple of things that people may miss out sometimes that you don't build to hold, um, not intending to create a conglomerate in the sense of uh, just having the businesses there. You're intending to buy the businesses, improve on them, uh, and then sell them. And then whatever you make in profit, then you invest it in the next cycle, if I understand you very correctly, right? Yes, yeah, precisely. So I think then in that sense, then, and I think then because you own quite a lot of companies, you have a very good feel of how the economy is doing. Um, and then during down cycles, like currently we are, debt is not a good uh, component to hold. And I know you're doing a lot of deleveraging. Is that what informs your current deleveraging, deleveraging of the partnership? Yeah, because, you know, you you have to take a view on the outlook of the economy. You know, you have to take, you know, like you do several scenarios. So what's what kind of economy are you going to have? So, so for us, coming out of 2017, when you had two elections, and 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 the advantage of being in many businesses is that you can feel what demand is looking like. So, if you've borrowed at 13 percent, and you don't have earnings growth of 13 percent plus, then you're going to be underwater very quickly because the value uplift will not keep up with the interest only. So then you have to say. So for us, we said, look, we think. It's going to be a tough five years. It is time for us to consolidate. We are sitting on close to 19 billion of debt. If we have a significant slowdown in the economy, remember also private equity assets are liquid assets. So you need to sell in a favorable economic conditions. If we hold on to the assets, what's going to happen is that we're going to lose the value uplift. These companies may even cut dividend because dividend is residual uh, distributions. So that's the first thing both cut, but then you have contractual obligations and a lot of the value you've created may be, may be lost. So we need to preserve value. And, and so the point was, the sensible thing then to do is to exit at this point and, and pay down the debt because the intention was not for us to be a debt-funded business, but we got into debt because of the constraints that we had there in terms of the funding model we had originally the, 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 the intention is for us to have our own our own capital and, and and the feeling of the investors the major shareholders in 2008 the view was this is a kenyan company if we raise capital will be diluted and would rather take a longer time and create our own capital so that's where we are going to pay down the debt build your yield portfolio so that what you then now reinvest is not the principal. You can then reinvest income, which means that even if you take on risk that don't materialize, you've not lost the, the cash flow side of the business. What you've lost, or if it takes longer, 
is a principal repayment, especially if you assume that you're going to go into more difficult times. Of course, that was in 2019, uh, 2018, 2019. Then obviously, we even ended up in a worse scenario than we had anticipated now with COVID uh, and, and, and sort of uh, and, and whatever, whatever impact it has had because now COVID affected not just Kenya, but the rest of the world. And so in hindsight, it was, it was, it was an excellent decision. I know it doesn't seem very exciting sort of to investors who are used to centum announcing deals, but the idea was let's consolidate. So, so far we've deployed about, because we've reduced debt from 19 to 3, so we've deployed about 16 billion in, in debt reduction and increased the marketable securities portfolio by about 5 billion. So about 21 billion has just been deployed over the last two years just in sort of consolidating the balance sheet. I would say that given such a model, during such times as this, it's time for a little bit of hibernation and in terms of the business because it's a tough time. But then at the same time, you're also strategically uh, exploring opportunities around you to see what can those type of assets that you can easily buy during such down yeah. at, a, at a discount. Uh, so like this is a time also to go to the market with your, your fishing net. There are lots of fish and then you can easily kind of capture them. So I would, I would ask them, like, what kind of uh, changes are you making right now so that you're able like, to capture these opportunities and also like to prepare for the next phase uh, of growth? So Eric, you believe it. Between last year, 2019, and this year, we've looked at more than 150 companies. And, and, and we are continuing to do so. And for us, the space we play, because, okay, now, let's start with how we, how we create value. How we create value is, is there room for us to enhance EBITDA or the key driver value three times in like four or five years? Deploying minimal additional capital. So first, there must be that opportunity for improvement. So you're not looking to buy perfect companies. If you buy perfect companies, you won't get a good IRR. And that's probably the reason why some of the large PE funds don't have a good return is because you're so risk averse. You, you, the company is ticking all the boxes. So you are now at the level of organic growth. If you're at the level of organic growth, uh, then you sort of end up with a 2 3 4% IRR, nothing more. So we are looking for transformation opportunities. But where the transformation is within sort of more management efficiencies, as opposed to, to market, you know, because the one thing that is really hard to change within a three to five year period is the market positioning of a company. The, the validation of the product or service the company sells in the market and the need of that product by the market is essential that that exists. It's essential that the team exists because also creating teams takes a long time. We, 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 we tried in 3.0 to create new businesses. And the most frustrating thing is around people and the team. So if, if it doesn't have a team, then it doesn't work. If the market opportunity is not there, it does not work. And then now there's an opportunity to, 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 to you know, sort of to scale it up. So we are currently looking at a number of, and, and obviously one where you can at least create value of at least a billion or two for it to be worth, to be worth your while. So those are the kind of opportunities we are looking at and where you can also get control. Because if you're not in control of the value creation process, and in control of the exit process, then you will create value and not realize it. And that's another challenge of the PE model and where you see a lot of challenges that when you take minority stakes, they're very hard to sell 
because then you're at the mercy of the majority shareholder. So getting a fully priced exit becomes very difficult. So a lot of our exits have been successful largely because we've been selling controlling stakes and then you're selling to, to, to strategics. So obviously a lot of businesses over the last two years have gone into like survival mode because of what has happened into the market. And so a lot of those conversations have sort of stalled or been deferred or companies have gotten into a lot worse situations. And one then, that's why we've looked at 150 and not closed any. Uh, but, I, but I believe, you know, shortly we will. It's just another, you know, it's, it's important to be disciplined because if you get it wrong in, 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 in the private equity space, getting out is difficult and it takes a long, long, long time. So that's one thing I've, I would tell people who are joining the profession is be very careful before you pull the trigger on, on what are liquid positions because you can get stuck in there even when you're trying to get out. So it's important to really take your time and do a, a, a thorough job before you go in. If I hear you well, then liquidity management is a key component of your uh, day-to-day. So like making sure that the company itself yeah. has, has, li- is, has liquid assets because you're also dealing with a lot of illiquid assets that take a long while to sell off. And if there is a fire sell, you actually are on the losing end of that stick. So you don't want that. But also uh, something else you've mentioned is about also making changes so that you're able to improve the EBITDA, uh, which is, uh, for those who are not in the know, it's earnings before interest and de- depreciation and amortization. Uh, so you want to make sure that that grows and mostly you're trying to cut costs or grow revenues. So I, I would ask, like, from the businesses that you've invested in so far, what do you see some of the key areas where you've levers you can pull and then you're able, like, to make changes and to grow your EBITDA margins? So they're typically four, four or five. You know, l- let me start with the the inputs, the on the input side, yeah? On the input side, you have to really look at the organizational health. Um, and because without dealing with organizational health, even if you focus on the financial metrics, it will not happen. So we typically do like a survey, or both a cultural survey, a survey of the enablers of the business what is the state in terms of the, 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 the competences of the team, uh, the culture of the team, just their engagement, etc. And, and you need to fix those things. But then you're fixing those things to achieve a certain result. The, the, the most, one of the major drivers of value enhancement is, is revenue growth. But the second most critical one is efficiency improvements. If I take an example of Almasi, uh, 80% of the value uplift on EBITDA came from efficiency improvements. And and now you start looking at like doing a study of why are we not efficient? So like, I'll give you a practical example. Like our our gross profit was, when we started was about 20%, whereas the rest of the industry was 30%. So you have a 10% opportunity to be be better. Why why were we not as efficient? One, we did not have uh, manufacturing capacity. So we were buying a lot of products from other bottlers who were like a reseller. So the solution then is to invest in your own manufacturing capacity. Two, we were leasing trucks, for example. If you have your own trucks, then again, that you become more efficient. Three, just our manufacturing processes were an issue, significant downtime. So now, now this is a rigorous thing. So you're just moving step by step by step. Now, to circle back, that's where the organizational health is important because these things have to be done by, 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 you know, by people. 
so that's one that's the other area so so how can what can we do to improve margins the third area how can we do it with capital efficiency because if you enhance value by 10 billion but you spend 10 billion doing it then you don't create any value so opportunities for capital efficiency are critical and just to go back to that example what we then ended up doing is like saying okay let's consolidate the three bottlers so that we we invest in one line to serve all three all three uh, sort of bottling plants. Let's consolidate the territory so that you can do it in a capital light manner and then the business can be cash flow generative. But now the fourth critical thing is now risk management of, of the business. So we typically work backwards from the due diligence checklist of the buyer. What kind of business does the buyer want to see? What is his current state? And what is the gap? So you'll find the buyer is not interested in finding when they do their DD, they don't want to find a long list of issues, whether it's on tax, whether it's on accounting issues, whether it's on operational issues. That's what now we work through the committees to fix. And then creating the governance. Now, creating the governance that can enable the business to survive without you is very important because if you don't do that, then no one will buy it from you. It is so embedded in you. So, so being able to create a healthy organization that is attractive to a multinational because once you cross the 50 million dollar mark you're then talking of selling to international organizations if you're selling to a strategic they tend to be very rigorous and very conscious about risk and about things that can come and embarrass them so so you have to fix that but also they are checking can this business operate without you so you need a parenting model that is more supervisory where there's an independent board their committees that function. And many of the companies we've sold, the, the new shareholders have not changed that any of the governance structures we've put in place. So those are all the sort of the pillars you're, you're building to build a more efficient enterprise, to make it attractive to, to a would-be buyer, and for you to optimize your exit valuation. Now, that thing takes time. And now the challenge is that it does not show up in the semi-annual investor briefings that we do. One sort of is looking at what was the profitability of the company this year. Forgetting actually that our business is not even the profitability. Our business is the growth in the profitability. So that then the valuation increases. So that then you can exit at that higher, higher valuation. And that is hence the mismatch between what you're trying to do and how sort of the market perceives us because market is used to more operating companies because most investment companies tend to be private. And sort of the metrics are very different from one where you're looking at it. Uh, sort of it's like watching a tree grow every six months. Oh, what happened in these six months? It didn't quite grow as we had expected. So, so, so it's a different metric. I think at this juncture, I would let you breathe a little bit and maybe inform people that uh, we'll be taking a, a few questions from the 45-minute mark of the conversation. So if you want your questions to be picked up, you can check our pinned tweets, write down uh, the questions and help us also like just elaborate on what you want to ask. We'll be digging deep a, li a little bit deeper into the balance sheet uh, in, a in a little while. And so to just uh, maybe recap the business model, maybe we're also doing a little bit of a thread uh, so you can check and see some of the key points that have been raised. So I think we've had from this personal side and also we've also had from the business itself. So the business is simply just to buy and sell businesses. So 
Uh, it's a it's a little bit of a holding company, so they don't hold for the long term. They seek to buy, make changes, and then sell uh, to strategic buyers, uh, maybe sometimes IPO. And maybe one of the questions maybe I received along the way was uh, why you don't do IPOs every so uh, every often, every so often, given that especially our uh, securities exchange is also also needs those, those kind of companies. So maybe in the second part of the conversation, we'll have that. So maybe at this point, I wanted to ask the trading group, do you have any question yourself? Well, maybe the main thing that I'd want to probably James to touch on would be on just personally, first bit as, as from his personal experience, is there any business that they think that he thinks that Centum has has done an acquisition in or probably invested in that had probably gone sour and how has that been for the company how did the company take that hit and probably did that finally how did they get through in passing that and then also another thing would be on to the overall comments that shareholders have constantly made with most shareholders really feeling that the company over the past few years, we know the the, the, current, the past financial year Centum gave a dividend, which was very commendable. But do you think that shareholders, because most of the time we've seen shareholders complain on the thought that uh, the company doesn't really care about them in terms of dividends. Because, you know, for most of the shareholders on the NSC, they would always want to have an overview. The dividend bit is always when they think the company cares for them and Possibly, I know. I know that Mongo Capital wanted to ask on this. Would be the future of Centum. Where do you see Centum in the next, you know, three to four years? Just the, that's on on a short on a short brief, not not the ten year long long lifespan for investors who want to invest. Because the Kenyan life space for most investors is always every four five years. Whenever we have elections, then things definitely change. Those are good questions. So let me start with the first question: What have we invested in that has not worked? Let me give you one. One is more power. Let's start with what information did we have at the time when we invested and what were we doing? So Amu Power is the Lamu Coal Power Project. This was not our project. It was a government initiative to do a public-private partnership where the government, based on their sort of analysis, wanted to have a baseload power plant of 1,000 megawatts so there's, there's baseload and picking power. Baseload is a power that is sort of always available. So, for example, people ask me, why, why didn't the government go for uh, renewables like wind and like, um, like um, uh, sun, the solar? The issue with that is that it's not baseload. It, 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 the, the, the production varies. But now to, to be able to, to have more of the, of the variable, you need a larger base. So think of base like the foundational uh, power. So the government under that vision 2030 had that idea. And they went for a tender for this particular uh, project. And actually our consortium did not win. We were in a different consortium. But then we joined the winning consortium. And our role was to develop the project, to take it to financial close, and then sell our equity at that stage. Why it made sense for the country at the time is that it was going to be the cheapest source of source of power. And the risk we were taking was the, the upfront sort of development development risk. So it, it, it made sense to the board and the IC at the time in the sense that it is sort of, you know, you are, you're supporting the government initiative to, to sort of add to the power in the grid and you're doing so at the lowest cost uh, uh, possible 
and you're participating in an area where local investors should participate, which is to de-risk the project, take it to financial close, and then and then exit. So the upside was going to be fairly attractive. But what happened along the way? What happened along the way and some of the risks that we did not quite anticipate is one, there were a number of environmental issues that 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 came up and that that significantly delayed the the period it was taking to get financial close. So in hindsight, we probably could have done more due diligence, but also sentiment towards coal changed like after a short period of time. So it moved from one extreme to another. But the second thing that happened is that the power demand did not keep up with what was projected and the state of KPLC balance sheet sort of deteriorated. So ultimately, I think a decision was taken sort of to... to to sort of mothball the, the project using the tribunal. So I think the lesson for us there has been one has to be quite careful on value creation that is highly or is dependent on external actors because you're not really in control, total control of the process. You may think you are, but you're not really in control. I think for us that has been, has been the lesson. And what we then did is we impaired it in full so we had spent about two billion shillings. We impaired it in full. So that's one of the of the projects that uh, we did, and where there have been lessons lessons learned. On 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 dividend, um, over the last six years, we've paid four point one billion shillings in dividend. And but I think what is, and and you know we've been paying one shilling and twenty cents, and this year we paid we reduced it to thirty three cents. I'll, I'll I'll come to that. But in aggregate, over the last six years, we've, we've returned 4.1 billion shillings to, 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 to investors. So, you know, I, I just want us to, to look at it, say, over a over 12-year cycle from 2009, because I can take uh, responsibility for what has happened since 2009. I, I started off with, with exactly 10 million and 30 million, 40 million shillings in cash. We've not gotten any capital infusion from, from, from any 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 shareholder, one of the CEOs who's been on the NSC, never raised any capital from any shareholder. All the capital we've raised to invest has been debt, debt capital. So in that period, you then have to both invest, exit, pay interest, pay principal, and still return capital to, 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 to shareholders, while at the same time, building up the liquidity buffer of the company. And so there's a trade-off. No matter how exceptional you are, you know, it's hard to achieve all those things. If the capital we had initially was equity capital, then all the capital we've spent in interest and and principal repayments of debt would have flown to our shareholders. Unfortunately, it was not because a choice was made not to raise equity capital, which would then have had the resultant effect of diluting the existing shareholders. The existing shareholders, the anchor shareholders, preferred not to be diluted, but to build capital in the company using borrowed capital. So, so we've returned a significant amount of capital back to providers of debt capital, and we raised two bonds in the market, which we've paid. We had bank debt, which we've paid. We've paid interest. At the same time, the shareholders wanted us to build our own capital base so that then to the point Eric was making, we don't invest 
borrowed money, but rather you have recurrent income, like say what Berkshire Hathaway has from his marketable securities portfolio. So that, that is what you're investing. So at the same time, you're, you're building that. Now it's about 8 billion shillings. At the same time, you then have distributions to make to, to shareholders. So it's, it's, a balancing, it's a balancing act. And, and so over the last six years, we've done 4.1. Uh, the, the target now we have is to pay 30% of annuity income. So, and why annuity income? is because we are no longer reliant now on exits. We now have enough capital of our own that is generating annuity income for you to sustain uh, a dividend stream from the annuity income. What happened in 2020 was really unprecedented because the, you know, you know, you know with COVID and what happened to the economy, a majority of companies cut their dividend and, and you know it was unprecedented so even as you're coming up with a dividend policy you don't anticipate even in your wildest sort of risk scenarios that this would this would happen so the first thing and you noticed on the nsc the first thing and action companies took was to cut dividend so if you're sitting as an investor whose primary source of income is, is dividend then that has been cut then remember now the exit environment is not attractive so you again can't exit Fortunately for us, we had built up this annuity income stream, which is why the, the, we still paid a dividend, albeit reduced. But it was just out of an abundance of caution where, where, where directors felt the, their primary responsibility was to the company. And because you're also going into elections and you're going into another cycle, you don't know what's going to happen. We perhaps need to be a lot more cautious, but nevertheless pay, pay dividend to, to shareholders, which is why we reduced it. What's the future outlook of this business? So it's sort of it's important to understand what we've been trying to do. We've been trying to build capital out of almost nothing. You know, you 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 you've borrowed, and you've taken advantage of the environment as it was to create a capital. You've paid back. Now you've built your own capital. So Centum is going to be an organization. I think my own sort of target and the target of the strategies, sort of in three years' time, we should be able to generate an annuity income of three to four billion shillings every year. So with that kind of money, you then can afford to pay a dividend of 30% of that, so two shillings, um, that's 1.2 billion. You have a fixed cost structure of about 400 million shillings, and the rest is available for reinvestment. So you can be investing about 2-3 billion every year without needing to, to go to borrow. So it's going to be one of the few uh, local institutions that's going to be capital surplus and generating capital on an annual basis that is available for reinvestment. And that's what we've been working on. It's been, it's been a journey that has taken a while. Uh, we've been 12 years at it. In that period, you've had a lot of challenges. But that's really where we are going. So uh, a quick question, maybe then, given that you raise a lot of debt, I think the, one of the, some of the complaints that you get from shareholders, of course, the share price has been uh, sinking for a while. So do you, do you then feel like it may be profitable for investors to actually be more invested in your debt than in your equity so far uh, because the returns seem to be flowing to debt holders so far. I know like you're keen on reducing the debt overhang so that you're able to have uh, a little light balance sheet in terms of debt but then going forward should the, how could you comfort shareholders who've been burnt in the process of holding the share and hoping for a few. Uh, and I, thought, I think something else you've talked about is also share buyback. So maybe you can give us a little bit of a brief on how you're thinking about uh, in terms of capital return to shareholders going forward, dividends, share buybacks, and all that kind of stuff. 
Yeah, yeah. Let's start with the debt and then the share price. So on on, on the debt side, uh, we've already paid all the long-term debt, so we don't have any more debt. So there's no opportunity to invest in the debt of Centum. And so some of us portfolio companies have issued debt. That may be an opportunity. But remember, this debt is earning 13%. Now, on the share, you know, it really depends on this journey at what point you came in. What I've, what I've noticed with our share price is that it's highly correlated with the index. So there's a time when the index really rallied and, and, and the share price sort of moved in tandem with the, with, the, with the index. And in a sense, even at a premium to, to NAV. So depending on when you, and then the, then the index has been tanking. And, and at the time when the index had rallied, it was really driven by, by local investors. Now, if you look at the history of Centum, is up until 2007, our articles do not even allow foreigners to invest in, in Centum. Uh, actually, ownership of Centum was restricted by law because Centum was established through an edict of the president, President Jomo Kenyatta in 1967 as a subsidiary of ICDC. It was established to be owned only by Africans. Now, the problem with that is that the, the, the rally happened driven by local investor participation the shareholder profile of Centum remains still local. We have less than maybe 2% uh, or 3% foreign uh, shareholding. But the stock market today is driven largely by foreign investors. And then you have a very limited free float, largely because the main investors don't buy, don't sell, sort of they keep on buying. And then there are a lot of shareholders with small holdings who have bought and kept for a long period of time. So the, one of the challenges we've had is just the free float not being there for institutional investors. And therefore, has, as the rally has happened, we are, not of, we are not sort of like a safaricom where you have a very significant institutional and foreign uh, shareholder participation all the way from the get-go when they did their, 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 their IPO. So that has meant that as the index has come down, the sort of the price has been correlated with the index and it has gotten disconnected to, to, to NAV. And so the issue has been around the share buybacks because what share buybacks do is that they reduce the overhang and they reward everybody because then if you're distributing, say, a billion shillings, you're now distributing to fewer shareholders. Now, the only challenge, the only tricky thing, you know, in the real life is that you have multiple priorities. Now, you have an economic environment which appears very uncertain. If it was certain, then one would have said, let us deprioritize deleveraging and focus on applying that capital to share buybacks. But because the, the, the environment is uncertain, you then say, okay, and you have competing needs, then the competing needs for the capital have been, let's first deleverage, let's prioritize the deleveraging, and also prioritize um, building up the recurrent income portfolio, then we can use this recurrent income instead of distributing it as entirely as dividend. Some of it can go towards the share buybacks. Now, as a CEO, you, cannot, you, you end up solving now for the long-term shareholders. And I've been fortunate in the sense that the shareholders who are represented on the board, ICDC and Chris, have been long-term. So you're not solving... Because you cannot solve for everybody now. There's somebody who's just come into the boat in 2016. There's somebody who came 
this year. So you, you have to get the class you're solving for. And because the long-term shareholders sort of have a long-term view and understanding of where the company is going, then they can excite patients to say, okay, let's first do this thing so that then when we start doing a buyback program, we can sustain it from recurrent income as opposed to from, uh, say, say, exits. And so at this year's AGM, we'll be amending the articles to allow for the, for the buyback. So it's one form of returning surplus capital back to the shareholders. Hopefully that will reduce the overhang. Yeah, I think I can hear a lot of relation from the shareholders um, who have been paying for a while. So I think I think share buybacks have been a boon at, at least for NMG. I think it's boosted the share price uh, short term. I think given it a little bit of wins in the sales, uh, wins in the sales. So I, I would say that's a brilliant initiative, so to speak. A couple of questions which have been raised. Uh, I think the bear case for, and I think it would be nice if you could deal with that. The bear case for setup. So one is the books are complicated, and are you cooking the books? That's a question that has come across. But I think in that regard, a question I, would, I had in mind myself was, I think the challenge, uh, and I think when I was in at this, in school here, one of the uh, CEOs of a company like yours in Sweden came in, and I think they IPO'd, and one of the biggest challenge was, of course, explaining the business and the business model to investors, to analysts, and to help them understand all this. And one of the challenges, of course, is that of course, you're a kind of a holding company, so then you you don't like the businesses under you. You don't fully own them. Uh, you partly own own some of them, uh, so it's really difficult to really explain what you do, and at the same time to explain uh, your books to investors. So I would say, like, how would you take take us a little bit through your books and maybe help us understand like what are the key movers and key places uh, investors should be paying attention to uh, as a business, as the business you lead. Okay, so our, our set of accounts, there are two set of accounts. One is a consolidated financial statements. The second one is a company financial statements. Now, the consolidated financial statements are required are a, a company's act requirement for companies that have subsidiaries. However, I'll come to this. There's an exemption for investment companies. I'll come to that point. Now, the philosophy of a consolidated financial statement, let me take a, a well-known conglomerate like East African breweries. East African breweries under it may have Kenya breweries, may have a couple of other subsidiaries. But these subsidiaries collectively, they're integral to the operations of East African breweries. So for you to have a sense of how East African breweries is doing, you will then take Kenya breweries and before they had central class and a couple of others these are put together. Or, or KCB. KCB has, uh, or Equity Bank, Equity Holdings, they have banks. So these are homogeneous businesses, and these, these entities are, in aggregate, tell you about the performance of the business. So the framers of IFRS and the Companies Act, the intention is for you now at the holding company to have a set of consolidated financial statements that give you a view of how these entities, which operate together as one homogeneous entity, how they are performing. Those are the consolidated financial statements. Now, when you apply that consolidation principle to an investment company, then it doesn't make sense because these companies are not homogeneous. These are disparate uh, group of entities where the holder, for some of them, they are only owned. For some of them, they are subsidiaries, but maybe they are 
sort of 51% owned, some are 30%, and they're in very varying industries. Now, when you consolidate them, frankly, what you end up with doesn't make a lot of sense to, to anybody. And has contributed to the confusion that investors have because the, the media, the, the, the business media, because when you report on consolidated accounts of the companies they're used to, whether it's KCB, Equity, um, Safaricom, whatever it is, the focus is on the consolidated. Now, now there's confusion because then when you come to the investment company, the, the company uh, accounts, these are the ones that tell you how we are doing as an investment company, how much dividend we've received. So, for example, in our consolidated entity, you cannot tell what dividend we received because it's, 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 it's sort of netted off in the consolidation. So the company P&L is what tells you how the entity is doing. But the emphasis then tends to be on the consolidated. I've even seen analyst reports where they're analyzing the balance sheet of the consolidated entity, where you've consolidated a bank with a real estate company, which are totally unrelated in one entity. Now, there's a window in the Companies Act that gives investment companies exemption from preparing um, consolidated entities, uh, consolidated financial statements, if the intention is to hold the companies for purposes of sale. And that's a conversation we are having with the, with our auditors and our audit committee to see whether that's a window we want to take. That's something we're exploring because now there's a lot of confusion. In that confusion, value is destroyed for 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 sort of for for everybody. So the the set of numbers that tells you how we are doing as an investment company is a company P and L, because what you see at the bottom, the total return statement is telling you what dividend we've had, what expenses we've, we've incurred, what revaluations have been done. And if you look at the last two years, um, the previous year it was negative 10, this year negative 8%, which is consistent because we've had a lot of revaluation uh, losses. And the company balance sheet just takes the assets we hold in terms of evaluation of the instruments you're holding, whether it's the equity instruments, less the debt, and you arrive at the NAV. So that sort of gives you a sense of how the company is doing as an investment company. So I think in that regard, then, the question that came through is also, have you been a bit aggressive in the fair value gains aspect of it? And the which as I said, is a valuation. So if you look at the books themselves. So if you look at the last uh, two years, we, if you look at our company, uh, P&L, for the last 10 years, Two years, two years, sorry. We've had uh, impairment and revaluation losses of 10 billion. So we've been fairly conservative in terms of the impairments we've passed and the revaluation losses that we've, we've passed. For example, a company like Amu Power, we wrote it to zero. Uh, do, do I think the net realizable value is zero? Maybe not quite. So if you look again at our exits, with the exception of one company called King Beverage, which we sold below cost, uh, all other companies we've exited at a premium to carrying value. All other exits that we have we have done. So I would not say I don't. I think the evidence suggests otherwise. The NAV has come down of uh, centum over the last two years by ten billion, largely on account of revaluation losses, which we've passed through the company uh, P and L. What what creates confusion now in the company? 
is a requirement to revalue investment property on an annual basis. So you have you have a lot of wild movements there. So either up or down. And 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 so that's why I think whenever I do the investor presentations, I I, I emphasize just focus on the company PNL. Because even any dividends will be paid from the company PNL. I'll give an example. A lot of uh, business journalists asked me, and even the, one of the main, main main sort of journals in this country ran an article that said, despite Centum booking a loss, they paid a dividend. You see, the loss was in the consolidated uh, PNL. If you go to the company PNL, if you exclude the the, the revaluation losses that went through the PNL, it was actually profitable. The entity that is paying the dividend is not the consolidated entity. It is the company itself that is paying the dividend. And the revenue reserve is the revenue reserve of the company itself, the entity itself. So you can see the confusion it creates even for respected uh, business uh, journalists. But that's largely because I think to your point, Eric, when you began is that Centum is the only company of its kind. And the other companies that are similar are running homogeneous. They're not investment companies. They're running operating businesses where the subsidiaries within them are part and parcel of the operations of that company. So I think that's, 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 that's a distinction. So perhaps then uh, a key aspect of maybe the balance sheet then is maybe a question I would ask about the balance sheet. That how does a perfect balance sheet for you look like? And then in accounting for the various businesses, since you have various uh, amounts of shareholding and some of them like CDN you own through a, another subsidiary you own CDN and then directly you own through CDN you own CDN itself so how do you do the accounting for all these sort of businesses especially in the consolidated uh, business itself on the consolidated level how do you do that so at the, at the consolidated level if you're looking at the consolidated accounts we then aggregate the P&Ls of all those companies that we hold more than 51% as if we hold 100%. Then you deduct the minority interest through what is called minority interest at the bottom. Now, what is reported is the aggregate as if it's 100% because the minority interest is done as a, as a disclosure at the, at the bottom. At the company level, say for CDN, the only thing that will go into the P&L is if there's been a, a dividend, that is going to go into the PNL. If there's no dividend, then it has no PNL impact. If we have an impairment, i.e., the value now is below cost, that passes through the PNL. If there's a downward revaluation, that goes through other concili- other cons- other income OCI, what is called OCI, just below the the profit after after tax. So that's how that's how we account for it. And then, okay, I'm an accountant, so maybe I may have lost a few in that regard. So I think that I have I, been skeptical myself of using just the, the company itself. So I've been concentrating a lot on the group level, so that helps a little bit explain that. But then in terms of a perfect balance sheet, how does that look for you going forward? You see, what you're trying to achieve, let's go back to where we began. Where we began was the company has been there for 40 years. The last, when I took over in 2009, the last share issue we had had was in 2001. We only raised 300 million shillings. We need to scale up, otherwise we're going to be totally irrelevant. If we did not do that, you not even, I would not be on this call today. Centum would have disappeared like another irrelevant 
entity. We need to scale up. So you need to scale up using debt and you need to invest in assets that will give you growth. So you cannot borrow and put your money in bonds. You must borrow to get assets that will give you growth and and exit. You must exit. You cannot hold them because if you hold them, what will happen is that the debt will overrun you and build capital. That's where we've been. Now the phase we're in is we want to invest income. So you now need a segment of the portfolio to be a recurrent cash income generating uh, portion of the of the business. And the rest of the business, you want it to be, the rest of the balance sheet, you want it to be a high growth business. You want it to be assets with potential for value uplift. On the debt side, from our perspective, we actually think we've achieved that objective because the objective was to retire our long-term debt. You're just left with the lines of credit that we have, which we typically use for bridging finance purposes. So we have a line, it's approximately 4 billion shillings, so it might be up or down, depending. So that if you have any need for liquidity, you draw down on that on that um, on that on that line. So that's sort of how our balance sheet. It's a, it's a simple balance sheet. That's how it should look like. So either the assets are there to give us growth, or the asset is there to give us recurrent cash. Because the growth side, the cash is very lumpy, so you cannot rely on that for 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 your sort of recurrent requirements, particularly uh, dividend. A statistic I have here is your ninety-three percent of your high yield portfolio is in cash and fixed income. Is that something that is deliberate in terms of keeping liquidity? It's something that is deliberate also from a risk management perspective because you see on the growth side you're already taking a lot of risk on the value. So you know a lot of these assets we've invested in in the high yield portfolio is the returns we made from the exits the exits we did in twenty nineteen and twenty eighteen. Now, the biggest tragedy would have been to put those assets, say, into shares. Because now today, we would have lost like 30% of value. So the purpose of that portfolio is to generate a yield. So right now, it's generating about 14 15%. That's, 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 that's the objective of that. And then now you have the risk assets. So that those, those you can have now fluctuations in, in value. You may have a depressed year. You may have. But because you are now not investing debt, you're sort of just investing your cash, you can be able to absorb that risk on the non-high non yield assets. So if the yield of the portfolio is 14%, uh, are you saying or implying then that your expectation in terms of to move this money from this high yield portfolio to an actual investment, you have to earn a return of at least 14% to be attractive? No, what you what you want. no, 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 no. What you want. You see, you see it's, it's, it's risk return, yeah? You see, the, 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 the return is a function of the risk you're prepared to take. So if you're earning 14% on your yield portfolio, so it means on a billion, on say, today we have 7.5 billion. So on 7.5 billion, you're making, say, 1.2 billion. Okay? Now, if you invest the 1.2 billion, you want to invest it at a 25% IRR, upwards of a 25% IRR. Because that that money that investment you're making in the PE has a higher risk. It it is illiquid. It is not generating for your current yield. Things may not work out as you had anticipated. It may take a lot longer. So each asset class has a different return expectation based on the risk you're looking to take. It's not homogeneous. Okay. Have I made sense? Yeah. But then in aggregate. Then in aggregate, you probably will end up at around 20%. So, 
So another question, in terms of exits, we haven't seen a lot of IPOs, and given our securities exchange also needs those, those sort of companies that you're exiting. You know, I think of all the investment companies, at least uh, we are one of the few that has brought some of our companies to the market. People forget that we brought Long on to the market. It was a private company, so we brought it to the market. Our markets are not ideal for exits, and I'm saying that having served on the board of NSC, for the reason that if we had attempted to exit Almasi on the market, one would not have got ten and a half times EBITDA multiple. Two, you, 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 the highest price exit for some of these companies is to a strategic investor, not to the public. Now, a strategic investor will pay a premium because they have synergies with the existing business. The public. Not necessarily so. Then we also have handcuffs. When you come to sell, you cannot sell everything because then the company will be left with no owner. Remember here, you are the majority shareholder. So the company has to transition to another owner. So it cannot come and be sold and now it is ownerless. So the highest priced exit for us is to a strategic investor. That strategic investor, many times, for them to undertake the synergies that they want, they want to remain private. And from our perspective, we don't have lock-ins. We don't, it's a shorter period. You have a bigger universe of investors to, to choose from. And sometimes you can even get a better, a better price. That's why our model is not necessarily consistent with exiting through the market. Because if you exit 53% of Almasi to the market, then who's left owning the company? Who's left steering the, the business? And, and we've been preparing it to be acquired by somebody else, a strategic, to then sort of bolt, them, bolt it on into the existing company, get further synergies. That's the only way you can justify a multiple of 10 and a half. If it was a financial investor, maybe you'd get at best seven. So that's the challenge of exiting control stakes. Maybe you can exit minority stakes onto the market. But minority stakes are not attractive to us because um, you can get a fully, you can get a 10 times EBITDA. You'll get a significantly lower uh, sort of multiple. Yeah, uh, I should say also I've seen a lot of questions on Centum 3 and 2. I, I would say that uh, at some point in the near future, we are, we are uh, hosting, we may host the Centum Re CEO. So I think those questions will be best handled there, given the limitation of time. Uh, so I would say then you can keep the questions until then on, on Centum. But if you have any comments yourself on Two Rivers and Centum Re, uh, maybe James yeah, can tell. Yeah, my comment is, is what's our business model? Is to create entities, create value, and exit. So Centum Re, our business as CACP, is not to sell houses. Our business is to make Centumbria as valuable as possible so that we can exit. So Sam is running that business. He's the one now selling the houses. He's the one, the CEO, running the operating business. So Centumbria, because we, are, you know, we invested $7.5 or $7 billion, we've gotten back about $4.5 So we have $2.5 invested. And we're probably going to recoup our entire investment in the next one or two years. What is going to be left there is profit. So the question then, how do you realize your, 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 you know, your value? TRDL the same. You know, it's something we created, a company we created from scratch. We invested about 1.9 billion. We've gotten a lot of it back. Uh, we still hold 58%. Uh, a lot of it is sort of 
our profit. And, and that's our business model because we ended up raising in TRDL about 20 billion, but you are sort of raising it at value uplifts and significantly higher value uplifts. And that's why the dilutive impact was not big on us. So we, were, we, you know, we still have 58% of that business. But relatively speaking, we are the investor who has put in the least money. And, and that's really our business model is to come in early, create value. So that even if there's risk, then you're risking less. But also remember, we had no choice. It's not like we had a lot of money to invest. So it was that taking a high upfront risk, uh, scaling up, attracting capital at higher valuations, and ultimately exiting your, your, you know, your position. So we are not necessarily embedded in real estate as an asset class. It's just that mm-hmm. way back in, uh, in 2009, 2010, when we were looking at which asset class had the potential to give us a 30% IRR, 20% IRR real estate was it. And if you look at uh, at Santa Maria as an example, because Santa Maria exceeds TR, excludes TRDL, you know, we are there. So so that the thinking was not was not wrong. There were some asset classes which we thought would do very well, like power, where we've actually deployed more capital than we've deployed in real estate, which did not perform as we had expected. So it, it was a view we took. And what we, we are enterprise builders. So, so St. Ambri, I'm proud that we moved from bare land to an entity now that has a board, that has a credit rating. And the, the reason, you know, part of the reason we wanted to issue the bond, we wanted to have a market instrument. You know, so you're moving to an investment grade entity. So if an international development company is looking at East Africa and saying, which entity can I come in as a platform company? and acquire if I don't wish to start from scratch with the governance, with the systems, with the processes, with the sales teams and the rest, then our St. Ambri is there, up there, and you can do diligence, you know, fully compliant from a tax perspective, etc. And we are not emotional about owning assets. We, we, we are very, we, you know, we are, there's no emotions with, for us. It's, it's you know, this, this is the business we're in. We, we create and everyone who works even in those companies, knows that the purpose of their existence is to create as much value in the entity as possible so that they can be sold to a different owner. So in terms of these businesses that you own, um, one question I also uh, was thinking about was, I think, disparage in the sense that are there synergies, say, between Centenary and Cedian? Do you, like, require your portfolio companies maybe to bank with Cedian so that then you kind of leverage the so that the money is flowing within this uh, business model that you created. So do you see a lot of synergies between the portfolio companies that you own? Initially, we, no, look, we encourage, we don't require. We encourage, you don't require. Because if you require, it's very easy for you to fall into now value destruction. So, in fact, our parenting model is supervisory. We don't want to be the ones doing operations of businesses. Our role is to build entities at work that can function on their own. So you'll find St. Ambri, for example, the other day, I think they have signed a partnership agreement with APSA. They are fine signed with other banks because I want to be able to hold those CEOs accountable for the deliverables without them saying, you know, look, you tied my hands by requiring that I work with entity A, B, C, D. So we encourage as much as it's possible and as to the extent that it makes sense to your business. But we don't require because from experience, what we found out is that it's very easy to, to get into value destruction.
All right. I think I want to ask maybe a question on capital allocation. How do you think about uh, maybe uh, the way in which maybe you can you can give us a little. I, it's a question maybe I failed to ask at the beginning. Okay. If you look at income itself, you have this allocation to private equity and real estate. How how is that looking like presently? in terms of capital allocation, and then going forward, where would you want to be? Because there's also a bit of worry among investors that the exposure to real estate is a bit too high. With some of the issues that some of the companies are having in that space, then there's a little bit of worry there. So do you then want to maybe assure maybe investors in terms of that at some point you maybe shift towards more of a PE-based model, which most people maybe invested in Centum with that uh, thinking in mind? So capital allocation, how you think about it, what influences you there? So let's start at the asset class uh, uh, level, then we come to the individual uh, assets level. So from an asset class perspective, I think for us now, it's a misnomer even to speak of real estate because Centamri is, is an entity, is an operating entity like any other entity. So actually now, sort of you can consider all of them to be private equity uh, assets. It's just that some have been more successful than others, and 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 the idea is to quickly move them along the maturity profile, and 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 exit, and reallocate now based on not so much asset class, based so much on uh, the three things I'll talk about. One, we look at what is the IRR potential of the money you've invested. Does the IRR exceed your threshold? Two, what is the NPV? relative to the risk because you don't want to do a lot of work for an NPV of 200 million. You want it to be a billion and above relative to the risk. Three, how does that asset sit from a risk perspective in the context of the rest of the assets in the portfolio? Is it in the same uh, industry? Is it exposed to the same factors? Is it helping you on diversification, uh, etc.? So that's the thinking in terms of, of new new assets. The idea is to deploy the income coming from our yield portfolio. So the idea is when you do exits, you cycle it into the yield portfolio and income, and that income you then deploy it using the criteria that I have mentioned to you. On real estate, it's not that we invested a lot of money. It's that we were relatively successful in that in that asset class. Just as we were at one point in, in beverages, it's not that we had invested a lot of money were successful. There are places actually, there are asset classes where we've invested more money, but we've not been as um, as successful. So all the assets we have are sort of on a journey, the value creation journey. The ultimate success is is a profitable exit. That's what you consider success for us as an as an asset as an asset manager. And 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 ultimately and ideally, what my own ambition is for this company is for it to be able to have its own capital. So that you don't have to go and, and, and look for capital and, and get it on very onerous terms. As we deploy capital into new assets using sort of from a return perspective, the IRR, NPV relative to risk, and that the way it sits on the, on, on, on the portfolio. So a lot to digest, but I think one of the things that would uh, maybe give us an example as it relates maybe to a real estate portfolio, uh, because I follow Warren Buffett a lot. I think in 2016, he invested in Apple and right now it's uh, around 40% of their portfolio. So they did not go about intending to own 40% of their portfolio to be in Apple. But I think you, as you 
as your investment grows, you kind of sometimes just find yourself that the portfolio is a bit away from your, uh, the, the, the possible that you wanted in terms of capital allocation. So I think then maybe in that regard, then I would ask you what is would be your ideal portfolio allocation uh, towards these various asset classes? And then uh, another question I've received is about regional expansion, maybe investing beyond borders. How is uh, Uganda doing? And are you also thinking about deploying capital in other parts of Africa? And maybe finally a question on uh, maybe investing in, uh, have you considered maybe being investing in venture, uh, doing a venture capital arm at some point and maybe investing in uh, like small businesses so that you can maybe also be tapping into, say, the companies like the Nigerian companies that are growing very fast, like Flutterwave. So have you considered maybe forming a venture arm of uh, a center? Yeah, thank you. Let me just, because I think I've answered the asset class question, let me just answer the question on um, regional expansion. What we what we've tended to do is to support our portfolio companies to expand in the region, because we are fortunate to be in Kenya because Kenya is has the most developed financial markets in the in the region, and actually if you think about Nigeria, South Africa, Egypt, Kenya, these are the major capitals. Kenya is very attractive for investors, and that is important when you come to selling. Investors are very comfortable with Kenya, so Kenya is a good base. And many companies as they scale up, they need to sort of expand in the region. And we've supported a lot of our business. A company like Longon is now all the way in West Africa, in all the East African countries. And many companies, we've supported them from that particular uh, sort of uh, perspective. But I think being in Kenya is a significant competitive strength for a lot of companies because when you go to engage with even strategics, no one asks you about the macroeconomics, the politics most people who are serious about Africa understand understand Kenya, understand Nairobi. So I think sort of it's something you know we are lucky to have. Regarding VC, look, we 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 a few years ago we did sort of some small ticket investments in in, in greenfields and startups, but we were not very successful for a variety of uh, of reasons. One was even where there was market validation, the the scaling up was was a challenge so it's probably we didn't do it well it's not something we did well based on the results we got and uh, so it's not something we are currently focused on doing because you know strategy eric is you need to focus there are many things you have to say you're not going to do for now and so there are many things we have said we they are nice to do they are very good but you know it's about choices and and that for now we are not we are not. We are not. We are not doing. We, we, we did not. We did not validate. We did not have success. So we don't have validated learning, or evidence that we did it well. So at the moment, it's not one of the priority areas for us. So I think five minutes to the top of the kind of the minutes that you are allocated to us. So I wanted to ask maybe any reflections on past mistakes and maybe that you're taking with you as you go forward. Maybe as you so build a centum for the future so you can also share your kind of vision i know you've shared a little bit in bits and pieces but what would you envisage centum looking like in, in towards as you head towards maybe elections next year as you also navigate the boat uh, past that in 2025 i think for me the you know centum is a is a truly kenyan company it's a company i've had 
the blessing of leading for 12 years and being part of for 20 years. So I'm playing my part in it. And really my, my, my dream and aspiration is that it will be like the UK equivalent of a CDC where you have our own indigenous company. CDC is funded by government. As we are not funded, we have to be entrepreneurial. But that is able to be a source of equity capital because you have in this market you have a lot of debt providers you have equity providers but they are foreign uh, even the funds are the the pe funds and the other funds majority of the capital that they invest is foreign but having i think a local company that is well run well governed that generates capital that deploys capital that i think that's for me is my ambition to, to sort of my aspiration uh, for this entity and having moved it from a level where we were relying on debt to a level where we now have our own money to to invest and where we can you know really improve enterprises i think if, if we achieve that for me i'll consider it uh, i'll consider it success and 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 it's 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 a journey with ups and downs with sometimes uh, you know uh, setbacks but that's 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 really the journey we are we are on, and in the process we we need to solve a lot of the other issues, especially sort of share price issues, etc. But I think for me is just to remain true to that to that north star, and 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 just keep keep my eye on the ball in terms of taking the company there. All right. So maybe a final question also would be then, what's the kindest thing anyone has done to you in your professional career? I think the kindest thing uh, anyone has done to me is given me opportunity. Uh, the board of Centum was very kind to give me the opportunity to lead this company when I was only 30. And they could have picked many people, but they thought I could do it. And, and to take that risk on somebody like me, I think, was extraordinarily kind and gives one a platform sort of to have an outlet for their creative talent. A lot of people have a great ability, but they don't get opportunity. And that's something I've tried very much to pay back by, you know, sort of the various programs we've created, whether it's a graduate program, sometimes even recruiting more than we need just to give people the same opportunity uh, that was given to me. Great. Any closing words yourself? No, I want to, I want to thank all of you for your interest. Uh, I can see there are huge numbers on this platform. It's a real pleasure to be on the platform. To say I'm always very much uh, available. I appreciate all positive, negative feedback. That's part of the growth journey. And just to urge everybody, let's just be proud of our of our enterprises. Let's uh, encourage them. Let's correct them where they're not doing well. And to say for me, I'm very, you know, despite what we consider challenges in this country, I'm still very bullish about our prospects and remain very confident and sort of optimistic about uh, where we're going to end up as a as a nation and as a people. So I just want to thank all of you for participating, for taking time to listen to me and you, Eric, for the wonderful and insightful questions and for the way you've guided this particular session. It's my first such session and it's for me it's been very a learning opportunity as well. Thank you very much. Yeah, thank you for joining us. And I hope this is your first of many. Uh, you're welcome every time you make the announcements on results to always come by and uh, explain to us. I think it's the aim of such platforms is basically to just create a place where 
uh, people can talk to the uh, management teams around, learn from them. I think I've seen a lot of these in other places. So I think it's something that we can adopt so that we can kind of demystify the companies that we have around, able to understand the, their business models, how they make money and how they do their thinking and what their relationships are with each other. So I think that's the whole goal on a platform like this. And it's really nice that you took time, one and a half hours of your time. I know it's very busy time. Uh, as you also prepare for the AGM. So we are very appreciative of that. I also want to thank an entire team that I work with in the background who have also come up with the questions. Uh, I think you got a huge uh, document with a couple of questions and briefs. And so we have Bonnie, we have Eric, uh, we have Becky, and we have Sud also at the background, making sure that everything is going well. So I'm very appreciative of that. Also, the team at Centum that also helped us get in touch. Uh, thank you so much. For, uh, we appreciate it. It's been a long week in terms of back and forth engagements. So I think it's also really nice that we have you here. So looking forward to also hosting your portfolio companies. Uh, send them here uh, so that they can explain what they do and we can hold them accountable. Hopefully soon, right? Very well, thank you. Very well, thank you, Eric. Fantastic. Uh, thank you. Thank you for tonight and uh, see you next week.